Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. Now I'd invite you to take your copies of the scripture this morning, open to the book of Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, as we have gotten through the 10 words, now we come to the event right after the Lord ends the 10 words. And I hope we are thankful for the 10 words that we've heard, as we've worked through them. Uh, slowly, <laughs> taking our time, but I pray that the Lord would still use those in our lives, that we would not forget them, that we would continue to learn from them, and that we would remind ourselves how Jesus teaches us not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. What is it that underlies those 10 words but a holy and righteous God? What is it that underlies those words but a conviction that we are sinners? Paul even says, I would not have known I was a sinner. I would not have known what it was to covet unless the Lord said, you shall not covet. So we're confronted with a holy God, and we're confronted with our own sinful hearts. Would you stand as we read this morning, Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21, I will read for us. At the end, I'll say, this is the word of the, God, word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. To the one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, whose hairs of his head are white like wool, like snow, 
whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, whose voice is like the roar of many waters, and whose right hand holds seven stars, and from whose mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, and whose face is like the sun shining in full strength. To the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, which are the seven churches. To the one who walks in the midst of this church, this lampstand. Give us ears, we pray, to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To us, his church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We as human beings are designed by God to be responsive people. We respond and it tells us something about ourselves. It tells us that we are not primarily the initiators. We are not ultimately the instigators of anything. You didn't even instigate your own existence. Your parents did. Or even more fundamentally, God did. He is the initiator of all things. He reveals who he is and we respond. He works his mighty works, and we respond. He speaks, and we respond. This is the great distinction between the Creator and us, His creation, His creatures. It's why we worship. All of our worship is to be a response to Him. And we respond by ascribing worth to the one who is worthy of all praise and adoration and glory. The great struggle is that too often we would like to be the instigator, the initiator, and have others respond to us. It's a struggle for control. It's a struggle rooted in our pride. This is why the Bible, time and time again, calls upon us to respond, and respond specifically to God's Word. It's not enough to be a hearer of God's Word. It's not enough to accumulate knowledge about God's Word. It's not enough to have the right teaching, the right doctrine, to be orthodox. And listen, we can be avid Bible readers. We can be avid Bible studiers. We can hold more Bible studies. We can have more biblical discussion. We can have more theological debate. And I appreciate all of those things. All of those things are good. I love a theological debate just as much as the next pastor. But you can have all of those things and have not responded to God's word. Many hear the word, but never truly respond. Many can study the Bible, but never live according to the Bible. Many can fill their minds with the Bible, but God's word has never penetrated into their heart to change them. It's why James 1 says, 
but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Those who only hear the word, James says, they deceive themselves. They think they have everything that they need. They think they are being filled when actually they are empty. They think their bank accounts are full when they are completely and utterly spiritually bankrupt. Jesus even warns about this on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does what? Who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If you, he goes on to say, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat that house, but it did not fall because it, what, had been founded on the rock. What's the contrast? And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, he will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and what? And great was the fall of it. Rightly responding to the word of Christ is the difference between a house and a life that's built upon the rock or a house and a life that is built upon the sand. One life will stand, the other life will fall. And not slightly slip. What did Jesus say? Great will be the fall of that house. Hearing the word of God and responding is the difference between the one who is wise and the one who is a fool. And in the end, in the end, you will know the difference. Hearing the word but not doing the word is despising the word. And Proverbs 13, 13 says this, whoever despises the word brings destruction upon himself, but whoever reveres the commandment will be rewarded. As we've been focused intently on these 10 words, on these 10 commandments over the past few weeks, we now come to the event that's surrounding these events surrounding Yahweh giving these 10 words to his people. And the, we are reminded that God gives these 10 words to real people in a real place, in real time, and in real space. And our focus comes back and we see Mount Sinai again, and we see all of the Israelites there again, and we see Moses again. God's 10 words have come to an end. These next four verses bring a close to the words. They serve as an epilogue or an afterword, if you will. A reminder that these words were spoken by God to establish a covenant, a relationship between God and his people. And just as God spoke ten words at the beginning of Genesis, and he instigated the creation of all things, so remember that, 
10 words at the beginning of Genesis. And what was God doing? He was creating everything. He was starting everything. He was instigating everything. And so now, again, God speaks these 10 words to instigate his relationship with his people. And his people have heard. And the question becomes, now what? What will they do with these 10 words? What will we do with these 10 words? Will we respond? And if so, how are we to respond rightly? When we say, I've memorized the 10 words, I can tell you the 10 words, the 10 commandments by heart, I can tell you them in order. Is that what God wants? Have you done them? Have you obeyed them? Have you responded and responded in sincerity and in truth? It is responding that comes from the heart. From the heart because you see who this God is. It's not just going through all of the motions. It's not just about checking off the boxes. We can respond and respond rightly as those who have had a heart change. Are we responding rightly? And so this outline here in your bulletin, if you want to follow along using that, you can it's a little different than usual. The outline comes as a long, a little repetitive, and very pregnant sentence. But when it's all tied together, we will again see the big picture of not only how we are to respond, but why we are to respond, and what it is that enables us to respond. I think that's something that sometimes we forget. We need God to enable us to respond. Because all other responding is in vain. Christianity is not a pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, slap a smile on your face when you feel downcast and in despair. Christianity is a, is a relationship with a God who does everything for you and gives you everything that you need so that you are able to respond, so that you're able to deal with the hardship and with the difficulty and everything that you're going through in this life. So what do we need? Number one, when confronted with the awesome presence of God, when confronted with the awesome presence of God, everyone in our world wants to have an experience. You want to look back and think of all the good and meaningful experiences that you have had in your life. And in fact, how many companies try to sell you an experience? Come experience the thrill of a lifetime. I have no idea what that means. How many are seeking an extreme experience? How many people say they will give you an immersive experience. What are those? 
things where you strap these goggles on your face and you look like a weirdo. What our world calls an augmented reality where you have the perception of being in one place when actually you are in another. Some even call this a suspension of reality. People want to have immersive experiences because they want to leave reality behind. They want to leave the life that they know. They want to get rid of the pain and the hurt, the hardship, the baggage, the pressure. They want to leave all of that and they just want to forget about it. Why do you think there is a plague among young men who can't stop playing video games? They don't want to deal with life anymore. They don't want to deal with reality anymore. And how many want to experience something, anything other than reality and the life that they know? The Israelites here are standing at the base of Mount Sinai, and they had an immersive experience. But it is in no way a suspended reality. It was real. It was all real. And that is what made it spectacular, amazing, and terrifying. Look how verse 18 says this. All the people saw. All of the people of Israel were able to perceive what was happening. God had not hidden these words from them. God himself was not hiding from them. The people all saw it, and so they all would be held accountable before God. No one escaped. No one got around it. No one can say... I didn't hear what God said. I didn't know. I didn't experience that. They all saw. They all perceived. They all knew. And so they all would be held accountable before God. And what was their experience? It was the awesome presence of the Lord. Not awesome like we so flippantly use it today. How often do you use that word awesome? Oh, I had an awesome hamburger. That's an awesome car. There is one person who is truly awesome, and that is God and God alone. The awesome presence of the Lord does this. It fills you with awe. And there is a weight and there is a heaviness there to the very glory of God when you experience it. And the Israelites experience this firsthand. How is God's presence described? What does it say? First, there were thunders and flashes of lightning. In our mind, these two things go together. With lightning comes thunder. Maybe you've even been in a storm where it's come right over your house and all of a sudden there is this loud crack of thunder and Surprises you and shocks you, wakes you up.
This is a description of how God spoke. In fact, Exodus 19.19 says, God answered him in thunder. Imagine God speaking in that way. The voice of the Lord was loud. It was deafening. There also was the sound of the trumpet. We're told in Exodus 19 that sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Interestingly, also in Exodus 19, 13, it was the long blast of the trumpet that was meant to invite the people to come up to the very edge of the mountain. They weren't supposed to go up on the mountain, but the trumpet blasted. They were supposed to come to the edge of the mountain. The trumpet was meant to invite. God was calling the people to himself, calling them to approach him in the way that he had designed. And finally, we're told that the mountain was smoking. Exodus 19, 18 We're told why the whole mountain is wrapped in smoke, because the Lord, Yahweh, had descended on it in fire. Why is God's presence depicted this way? Why thunders and lightnings, trumpets? Why is Moses drawing our mind to God's presence in this way? Smoke? Go back for a moment to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. Genesis 15, God is making a covenant with Abram. And this is what happens in Genesis 15, verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. What's interesting is if we look at Exodus 20, verse 18, there's this word lightning. And prior to this in God's word, the only other time that that word is used is right here in Genesis 15, 17. And you can see it. It's translated differently. And a flaming torch. That word torch is the same for lightning that is translated in Exodus chapter 20. And so what's happening here? We see these similar depictions of God and his presence. There's smoke, there's fire, there's lightning. Why these similar depictions? Because what is God doing? He is against establishing his covenant with his people. It's not a covenant that is necessarily new. This covenant that God is making with the Israelites on Mount Sinai has its roots in the covenant that God made with Abraham. And the Israelites are supposed to think back to that event. And what is it telling us? And what was it telling them? This is the same God. This isn't a new God. 
This is the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He has not changed. He is the same. He is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And after all of those years, from the time that God made his covenant with Abraham to the time that God is making his covenant with his people on Mount Sinai, he is saying, I have not changed. I am faithful to my word. I am faithful to my promises. I am trustworthy and dependable. I have not left you. I have not forsaken you. And when confronted with the awesome presence of God, the people were afraid. They trembled and they shook. And what happened? They stood far off. They had been invited by the trumpet blast to come to the edge of the mountain, but there was something going on inside of them, inside of their hearts. When confronted with the awesome presence of God, you begin to see the greatness and the glory of God, and you come to see clearly who God is, but you also come to see clearly who you are. It's the same with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where do we begin? We begin with God and who he is. And it's only when that is in place that we begin to see who we are and what we really need. How terrifying was the awesome presence of God for the Israelites. And so we see our need, number two. We see our need for the mediating prophet of God. We see our need for the mediating prophet of God. That word mediating just means someone who stands in the middle. Someone who stands between God and the people. A mediator. We need a mediating prophet of God. And so these people here in verse 19, they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. I want to take their request in reverse order. So let's start with the end of verse 19 where the people say, do not let God speak to us lest we die. The word of the Lord God, speaking directly to his people, was so loud, was so direct, was so heart-piercing that the people couldn't take it anymore. We can't take God speaking to us. If he does, if he continues to speak to us, they say, we will be so overwhelmed by his speech that we will be undone. They recognized the holiness of the Lord. In the awesome and holy presence of the Lord, they saw their own sinfulness. They saw there was a great chasm between them and God, a chasm that had been carved out because of their sin and because of their rebellion against God. And if the holy God continued to speak to them, they would die by holiness. It's what Isaiah experienced when he encountered the presence of the Lord in the temple. In Isaiah 6, he said, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we know that we are sinners before God, it is right that we are reluctant to enter in to God's holy presence. What happens when you are in the presence of the holy God and he speaks to you? You think you're going to die. How many want God to speak to them? How many want God to speak to them in an audible voice? God, if you're there, just let me know. Just speak to me. Say something to me. Tell me something. And how many have claimed to hear God's audible voice speak to them? Here's a good litmus test to see if it's true. Did they think they were going to die? If not, maybe they should think again if it was really God's voice. When God speaks, people fall down as if they're dead people. It is a terrifying experience for a sinner. They didn't want to climb up into grandpa's lap. They didn't want to come with their request to a genie. No, the only thing in their minds at this time with God speaking directly to them was their survival. Can I survive this? Will I still be able to live? If God keeps speaking, that's it. It's over. We must take from this a very high view of God's word. God's word is not to be trifled with. It is not to be toyed around with or played with. It is not to be minimized or misused for one's own purposes and selfish gains. That's why we call God's word the Holy Bible, or Holy Scriptures. If the people have come to understand they could not bear to hear God speak to them directly, then what? They needed someone else. They needed a mediating prophet, someone who would stand in the gap, stand in that chasm between God and the people. And this mediating prophet receives God's word and then speaks that to the people. He is the covenant mediator. And so the Israelites make this request of Moses. Moses, you speak to us and then we'll listen. You speak to us, then we'll obey. Before the Mount Sinai experience, the Israelites had responded to the word of the Lord by saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They said that in Exodus 19.8. But now, after receiving the ten words, they need someone to stand between them and God. They need someone to relay the word of God to them. But let us understand, understand something important. It was not the people's request that made Moses the mediating prophet. As if the people said, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. And Moses said, hey, Israelites, that's a great idea. I think I'll do that. Moses, as 
the mediating prophet was the mediating prophet because it was God's idea. It was God's plan all along. God made Moses the mediating prophet. God had called Moses. He had commissioned Moses. He had given Moses everything he needed in order to be that prophet that he had called him to be. The theophany on Mount Sinai helped the people recognize Moses' authority as Yahweh's spokesman. But all of that authority did not come from the people. It came from God. God said, you're my man, Moses. You relay my word to the people. You will stand in the gap. And Moses, being the mediating prophet, serves as a pattern for another who would come, who would be the final and full mediating prophet of God. Look at Deuteronomy 18 with me. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 22. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses speaking, like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. So pause there for a second. What is Moses doing in Deuteronomy? He's saying, remember this event? Remember when you thought you were going to die? Verse 17. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So, who is this other prophet? Who is this new prophet? Who is this final prophet? Who is this mediating prophet? Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. We still need a mediator today. The only one who can stand in the gap. The only one who bridges that chasm between us and God. The God-man, Jesus Christ. He is God's final word. There is no other word that we need from God, for we know Christ, and we have Christ. Listen to what Hebrews says in 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Our relationship with God is only established through our covenant mediator, the mediating prophet, Jesus Christ. He has spoken God's word to us 
finally and fully. And now it's because of him that we can know God. It's because of him that we can have a relationship with God. It's because of him that we can obey God. It's because of him that we're enabled to respond rightly to God. And it leads us to our third point. When confronted with the awesome presence of God, we see our need for the mediating prophet of God to reassure us of the ultimate purpose of God. To reassure us of the ultimate purpose of God. So here is Moses now, called upon to be the mediating prophet. And what are his first words in verse 20? Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Look at those words for a moment, verse 20. What do you see there? Do not fear, fear. That's impossible. How am I supposed to do that? What a beautiful paradox. And listen, it's the same words in Hebrew. It's not two different words for fear. It's the same word for fear in both. So what's going on? How can Moses come and say, do not fear, and in the very next breath say, fear? Well, let's start with the do not fear. Do not fear, in this context, do not fear death. These words that God has given you have come to impart life to you. God has spoken these words to give you his love, to lead you in his ways. Do not fear, you're not going to die. How many messengers have come from God and said the same thing? I think of that angel that appeared to Mary. Do not fear, Mary. You're not going to die. Do not fear. Do not be overtaken by this fear of death because it will be debilitating. A fear that paralyzes, a fear that keeps us from doing what we should be doing. We are not meant to live in this kind of fear. And Moses gives us two reasons why they should not fear. First, God has come to test them. God's testing is always good and right and true and necessary. He tests his people to see if they truly trust him. He tests his people to see if they truly believe in him and his word. He tests them to expose what's in their heart. He tests us for our good. He tests us so that we might grow, so that we might cling more to Christ, so that we might depend more upon the God of the sovereign or the sovereign God of the universe. But the people are also not to fear because they are to fear the Lord so they may not sin. 
Here's the difference. The paralyzing fear is to melt away and be replaced with a healthy fear that results in faithful living by the people of God. Or to say it another way, you can't fear death and fear the Lord at the same time. Is there fear in your life that is paralyzing you? Is keeping you from doing what you should be doing? Is there fear of death? Is there fear of uncertainty? Is there fear of tumultuousness? God does not want you to live in that fear. He wants you to live in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a reverential awe that one has of God. It is a reverence of God that leads to obedience. How do you know if you're fearing the Lord? The consequence of fearing the Lord is that it will restrain sin in your life. Am I fearing the Lord? Do I really, really reverence him with my life and with all that I am? How do I know that? Well, is sin restrained in my life? Do I not want to sin? Do I want to run away from sin? Do I quickly repent of sin? The one who fears the Lord cannot, will not, does not want to continue in sin, but wants and prays that sin would be restrained in their life. The fear of the Lord is meant to hold you back from sinning. And we are God's people. We are to be ruled and governed by the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the only way that we can rightly respond to the Lord. And what are we to make of this? Look at what it says here. That the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. How in the world am I going to be able to do that? Fear the Lord so much that I cease from sinning? Impossible. Can't be done. I'm not perfect. Exactly. Exactly. God's ultimate purpose for us is that we would not sin, but that we would be free from sin. But what's the problem? We do sin. We are sinners. The Apostle John expresses it well in 1 John 2, 1 through 2, and he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Same idea here, right? Why is John writing these things? That you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and what's the underlying assumption? And you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. How is it that we are able to fear the Lord? Only through what Christ has done in being our advocate to take away our sin. 
It's only through his righteous sacrifice that we are made right with God and released from our bondage to sin so that the power of sin would no longer have control over us. Will we sin? Yes. But as Christians, we have the reassurance that our sin is not counted against us. Christ has extinguished the wrath of God reserved for us. And now we fear the Lord through the person and work of Jesus Christ so that we have his grace, so that we have his spirit to help us battle against sin in our own lives. People around Mount Sinai that day saw that they were sinners. Likewise, we must see ourselves as sinners. No. We must see ourselves as great sinners. But we must know and believe and have put our faith in the great Savior. Number four. So we might draw near to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. So we might draw near to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. And if we put it all together, when confronted with the awesome presence of God, we see our need for the mediating prophet of God to reassure us of the ultimate purpose of God so we might draw near to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. In this last verse, verse 21, we are given a contrast. Two different responses. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. To say it another way, the people remained distant from God while Moses drew closer to the very presence of God. Where are you this morning? Where are you? In that contrast, are you standing far off from God or are you drawing near to God? Maybe for the first time you see yourself as someone who has sinned against God, who is deserving of his judgment, and you realize you cannot approach him in the state that you are in, but this is why Christ Jesus has come. To those who would stand far off and beat their breast, unable even to lift up their eyes to heaven, only able to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, there is a transformation that takes place. God delivers those ones out of the domain of darkness and transfers them into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus Christ, in whom there is redemption and the forgiveness of sin. While Moses was the only one who could draw near. Now, through Christ, all of God's children, all of God's people are able to draw near to God himself. It is because Christ, the new Moses, who draw near to God, that ultimately we are able to draw near to him. 
And our drawing near is not based upon our own merit. It's not based upon our own works. It's based upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If you want an experience, an experience unlike any other experience, the greatest experience and even a greater experience than the Israelites experienced. God, through Christ, gives us that better experience. Quickly look with me at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 and following. To catch us up to speed, in Hebrews 12, we've been told to lay aside every weight and sin which would cling so closely to us, to run the race with endurance, to look to Jesus, that we would consider him who endured so that we would not grow weary or faint-hearted in the midst of our struggle against sin, that we would see the appropriateness of the Lord's discipline for those whom he loves And then we get to this, Hebrews 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's the old covenant. That's the covenant that God was making with the Israelites that day. That was what they had experienced. But what does the writer of Hebrews say next? Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Here's the difference. Old covenant, trembling, fear, you think you're going to die. Here's the new covenant in Jesus Christ with life and joy and the church. You want an experience like anything else, you have it in Jesus Christ. You have it in the church. You have it because you have God, because you have Jesus Christ, and because you are sprinkled by his blood, not a blood like that of Abel's, which cried out for vengeance, but a blood that makes you innocent and clean. You don't have to go out there looking for some other experience. Guess what? The experience begins right here. It begins in Christ's church. It begins with his people. It begins with the proclamation of God as judge and Jesus as savior. And then look at what it says. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is what? Speaking 
For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At, the, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So what's happening? Jesus Christ is speaking, and you must listen and hear what he is saying, because why? Judgment is coming, not judgment like back then where just the earth was shaking, shaken, but guess what? This time, the whole cosmos, everything is going to be shaken. It's final and full judgment upon everything that has been made. And what happens? Everything is going to be shaken, and what is eternal will remain, and everything else will be done away with. And then what does the writer of Hebrews say? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's what... That's what this new covenant does. It brings us into a kingdom that will last forever. It brings us into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There might be a lot of things out there in this world that might try to shake us. That might try to topple us. But we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Our security is in Christ. And so we will not be shaken. We will not refuse the voice of Christ. We will heed his voice today. We will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We will hear his word and we will respond. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, we plead according to Jesus' blood and righteousness that we would be those who have responded and continue to respond to you and to your word. We are told that this is how faith comes. Faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And so I pray that we would be those who have responded, those who continue to respond. And if there is someone here today, Lord, who has not responded yet, that today would be the day of salvation. Today they would say, yes, I see that I am a sinner. Yes, I need to turn from my sin. I'm tired of being paralyzed by the fear of death. I want to know the fear of the Lord and live for him, that today they would give their lives to Jesus and be saved. Father, we pray that you would help us. We need your help cannot respond on our own, for we need the Spirit of the living God in us to help us. 
to reveal to us who we are and what we need and to lead us each day to sanctify us, to purify us. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.